And one of the questions for you is, what is this? That's not for you. What's going on over here? What is this? You know what it is? You're not going to tell me, well, we'll go with Miss Kathy's hands. What is this? An orange. You don't have to be a horticulturalist, a biochemist, or even a farmer to know that this is an orange. All of you could have gotten that just like Miss Kathy would have gotten that right. And this is an orange. All right, guys, we're going to be talking about fruits today. And so I don't know what you're talking about, but y'all go on and have some time in Noah's Park Adventures and Learning. So Kathy got that one right, so that's one for one. What is this? A banana. That's right, B-A-N-A, yeah, something like that, B-A-N-A-N-A, yeah, a banana. So we got a banana, and we got, you are very specific on that, a gala apple, very specific, the only kind you buy, and this is a, you, you guys are batting a thousand, we can't get anything by y'all, and that's a, a lime. What kind of tree grows a lime? What kind of tree grows a plum? What kind of tree grows an apple? You would not expect that an apple tree would grow a banana, would you? No, not even in 2020. There's a reason that not even in 2020 an apple tree would grow a banana. There's no reason it could. And you would not expect a banana tree to grow. Why not? It's not in its nature. There's a certain nature within each one of the seeds that goes into the ground that produces the tree that brings forth the fruit that we put in front of us. And when I show you that fruit, you're instantaneously able to diagnose and repeat what you know that fruit is because you've seen it before. You've experienced it before. I, I wanted to get some weird fruits that maybe you've never seen before and bring them up today and see how good you were at diagnosing and repeating what those fruits were. But there's some that you've not experienced. There's some that you've not seen. Let me ask you the question, have you ever experienced spiritual fruit in your life? You see, the reason these are identifiable is because you know the nature of these fruit. You understand the nature of these fruit from the type of trees that produce these fruits. You may have never seen the trees before in your life. Chances are you have, but even if you haven't, you understand there's a certain nature of a certain tree that produces a certain fruit. And the same thing is true with the spiritual fruit in our life. That there is a certain nature that brings forth that spiritual fruit. And there's also certain conditions. You, you, you wouldn't grow an apple tree in Florida. Well, maybe they're tinkering around, tinkering around with the genetics now. Maybe they have one, but by its very nature, apple trees grow in a more colder environment up north and orange trees by their nature grows in a more temperate climate like what we have down here 
in Florida. And, and so there's certain conditions that produce these certain fruits. But the same thing's true with the spiritual fruit that God would bring from your life. There has to be certain conditions that are met. With these fruit, it's climate and water and sun and, and everything that's necessary to produce it. But that doesn't mean that the conditions are always optimal to produce these fruit. I was watching a special on the Space Shuttle Challenger. How many of you remember that fateful day when the Space Shuttle Challenger went up and didn't make it to its destination and several people perished? I remember that fateful day, but one of the uh, instances within that Space Shuttle Challenger exploding upon takeoff was the weather. And the weather dropped to freezing and, and below freezing that night before. It caused the O-rings to, to actually shrink and contract somewhat within that uh, shuttle rocket engine. And when that happened, it let oxygen into that rocket engine and that caused the explosion. But do you know, they weren't the only ones having a horrible day that day. The orange growers all over Florida were having a horrible night that night because the conditions to produce the oranges were changed because of the weather and they knew that there would be a substantial loss to their uh, fruit. But it didn't mean that orange trees still didn't produce oranges. The conditions changed but there were still oranges being produced in orange groves in Florida in spite of the freezing weather. It may not have been as big as that orange there that I showed you would normally be. It may not have been as many oranges as would normally be produced. But the nature of the orange tree would overcome the conditions that changed and still produce oranges. The same thing's true with your spiritual nature. The conditions might change in your life. Things that were going good one moment might all of a sudden be going terrible the next moment. Things that you thought were there for your edification might all of a sudden be there for your growth in the Spirit, and they might become difficult along the way. It doesn't mean that God's going to stop producing fruit through your life just because the conditions change. He's still going to produce fruit. It might not look like what it looked like before. You, you might not recognize it as quickly. But God is still going to produce fruit even when the conditions are not optimal. And that's what happens when we talk about conflict and problems and, and labor that are part of the Christian walk. We often conflate peace with ease, but walking in Christ is not always easy. But, oh, my friends, it's always peace-filled. When you're walking in Christ, no matter if the conditions change in your life or not, God will always bring peace because he set the, the, the pertinent conditions to produce spiritual fruit by nature in the life of the believer. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we're going to be going to Acts chapter 17 as we were in last week, and we're going to be looking at... 1 Thessalonians as well in the first couple of chapters there today. Uh, but I want you to, your eyes to see 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to see what the primary condition of producing spiritual fruit is in the life of the believer. Here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. This is the fruit producing agent of the nature of God in you. And what does that verse say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Hold on just a second there. If you're in Christ, that means you're a new creation. You were an old creation. There was a time you weren't, and then you were, and now you are. Everybody keep up with that? And that was you. But the moment you come in Christ, the you you were ceases to be true. And now you become a new you you. You're a new you. Not that you created, but that God created by his work in you. You're a new creation. Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 goes on to say. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God gives you a different nature. A nature to produce something. A nature that creates something. A nature that yields something. A nature that wasn't the nature that you had, but it's the nature he's given you uh, to do his ministry and work through for the rest of your life. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you're a new creation. That's your new nature. John chapter 14, verse 16. Open up there to John chapter 14 verse 16 this is also part of the new nature that God's given you that are in Christ in John chapter 14 verse 16 scripture says and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever you have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit as part of that new nature what's the job of the Holy Spirit in the life of you, believer? What's the job of the Holy Spirit that abides and dwells in the temple of God now, which is you, believer? What's the job of the Holy Spirit to accomplish and produce in your life now, believer? What's the job? It's to make you more like Christ. And did Christ accomplish a fruitful life? He absolutely did, and his life is still yielding fruit here these thousands of years later because of the work that Christ did in the body, in the flesh. And your life is no different in that God desires to yield fruit from you. The fruit of the Spirit we read of, and we can name it, but my friends, is it working out that way in your life? Are you seeing the fruits of God as part of your life? Here's the point. I said earlier, the apple tree can't make the banana. And the orange tree can't make the apple. It's by the very nature that's in those trees that they make the things that they make. Well, here's the truth. Neither do you produce the spiritual fruit. You see, your nature can't do that. You can mask it and sell a package of goods that this is the fruits that you have in your life. And, and you can fool other people. But have you ever been into a wax fruit? Yeah, Jim, me too. You see it on the table. It looks good. You're a kid, I'm sure. Maybe you did it last week. I don't know. And you think, well, that looks really, and you tr tr it's terrible. You see, you can produce fake fruit in your life but they're not really from the nature of the spirit if the spirit's not in you only true fruit comes from the spirit of god you can't produce that either only the spirit of god does that and that includes listen to me what have we been talking about the last two weeks we've been talking about your walk in the will of god that's what we've been talking about you can't produce that either 
You can't say, you know what, I'm going to center myself in the will of God. I'm going to make myself in the will of God. And you know what we normally do when we double down and decide that we're going to walk in the will of God? We start trying to do everything right. We start becoming legalists. We, we start following the letter of the law. Uh, I don't cuss, I don't chew, I don't date girls that do. And we start making sure that, that, that we're living the Christian life. The Christian life is not constraint. The Christian life is liberty. And liberty is only discovered when you free yourself up to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Other than that, you're walking around shackled, trying your best to do what you can do in the flesh when it's not that that God desires anyway. It's the freedom in his spirit that he desires. And he's the one that builds that. So two weeks ago from Acts chapter 17, we looked at finding God's personal call and direction. It begins by being faithful to what God has already revealed. In other words, agreeing with God that what he has said is true. Salvation, God, is true. The indwelling of your Holy Spirit, God, is true true Uh, the leadership of the body of christ in my life god is true god's already put all of those things in word and in text for us to understand the truth that he's given us and it's that agreement with the direction that god's given through his expressed and exposed will by the word of god that we go yes we agree with that and that's our desire to walk in it you're not always going to be perfect but being faithful means you believe it And that you follow God into it, letting him lead the steps for you through it. And and we also saw not only is finding God's personal call and direction, uh, that it begins with being faithful to what God has already revealed, but also finding God's personal call and direction yields fruit. How's your fruitfulness look? You have to be your own fruit inspectors, by the way. And you know, you know if, Serving God is a joy or a burden. Only you know that. And by the way, your answer to that question, if you were brave enough to ask yourself that question, is my serving God a joy or a burden? Your answer to that question really does reveal who's trying to produce the fruit in your life. Whether it's you, or you're allowing the work of the Holy Spirit to do it. I I told you God does have a Macedonian call uh, for each of us, and he has a direction for all of us to go. And, And the very point I made and finished with last week is your life, in order to walk in the call and let the fruit of God be exposed, Uh, through his will in your life, your call, your life call, must be centered on the firm foundation of the gospel. The gospel is the center of it all. Not anything else. 
the church is not the center of it all. The church is a derivative of the gospel. The programs are not the center of it all. The programs are a derivative of the gospel. Your family is not even the center of it all. God derives from the gospel your headship and leadership in that family in order to bring them to the gospel. What are the requirements of being a deacon? I can ask the deacons that we just interviewed and hopefully they could answer it. I, I could ask the pastors, what's the requirements of being a pastor the number one requirement of those parts of positions in the church is are you teaching your family the gospel the gospel is the foundation of it all and if you want to walk in the will that God has for your life let your life be about the gospel you say are you telling me pastor I need to be standing on a street corner with a megaphone telling people to be saved No, you need to be getting in the Word, standing on His Word, letting His Word get into you so that the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel becomes the centrality of the lens in which you see everything that you read Scripture through. And when you see the gospel is the centrality of the lens that you see Scripture through and you go to Noah and his ark and you see the door is open that people may come in, you say the gospel. When you see the door is closed that nobody else can come in you say the gospel whenever you look back through scripture and you see the rock is struck so that water may issue forward you go the gospel Jesus is the rock of my salvation and he was bruised for my sins he was bruised for my iniquities and when you see the rock was to be spoken to so that water may issue forward you go the gospel he gave forth that living water and now he continues to give forth that living water water because he saved me a water that he promised a woman at the well will quench unto everlasting life the gospel is the center of it all don't ever get away from the gospel let it be that firm foundation that God says this is the will for your life a life must be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ secondly what we're entering into today is a life centered on the firm foundation of the gospel this is what it'll do for you A life centered on the firm foundation of the gospel will let you weather the storm. It'll let you get through the difficult times and the dangerous days. It it will let you not quake in your boots when the world around you seems to be falling apart. When your life is centered on the gospel, you know this, that Jesus died to forgive sinners such as you and me, that he rose to promise us heaven and ever, ever after, and that he's coming again to receive his church one day. Why do we know that? Because of the gospel. And knowing that, then when the world is collapsing around us, we know that we have safety and security in him even if our bodies are torn apart by the world. It doesn't matter. We know that everything he said has been true. A life centered on the firm foundation of the gospel will weather the storms. You say, well, Okay, we're not there yet. I'm just going through difficulties of days. I'm trying to be uh, the gospel presentation to family and friends. I'm trying to live my life in front of them. And I'm not being perturbed or disturbed by the things that are out there yet. But how do I 
how do I keep my mind and heart on the gospel through it all? That's where Acts chapter 17 starts to show us a little bit that we need to know. Look at verses 5 through 9 of Acts chapter 17. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. You see, this is when it became personal. The attack became real. The threat of safety and security was immediately upon Paul and his companions. Verse 6 goes on and says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. You see how they put the government in the midst of it all? It's bad for the welfare of us, for what they're doing. You see, our founding fathers had a great vision. And that great vision was to keep the government out of it all. So that the people could be the people. And let the people govern themselves. We've gone off of that realm. We've now let the government become the intervention in almost every way of life. And I don't know if there's any retracing our steps to gain back what we've lost. But I will say this. God didn't quake in his boots when his people got drugged to the magistrate. He didn't wonder what he would do to get glory out of such a time as that. Matter of fact, when you read on, you see they, they accuse Jason has harbored them all, and, and these are all acting contrary to the decree, saying there is another King Jesus, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, so that when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What would possibly become uh, of these people that have been threatened with life and limb about the government there in Thessalonica. What, what would possibly, they would stop meeting, wouldn't they? they? They would cease and desist, wouldn't they? They would crawl under a rock and make sure to stay safe and secure from the leaders of the government, wouldn't they? You know better than that. We've got a whole book entitled Thessalonians. I want you to turn real quick to Thessalonians chapter 2. When you read the book of Acts and the account of the attack that took place on Jason's house because of Paul and because of Barnabas and because of the other disciples that were there, because of the people that were believing in Jesus and the church that was being birthed, when you read that account in Acts chapter 17, you do know that it was Luke that wrote that account. And so when Luke wrote that account, he gave details of what was going on in the political, socioeconomic uh, region of that area by those short things that he said. People were basically losing money and they didn't like it, so they attacked him. He, that's in there. Now read what Paul writes when he writes of Thess 
Thessalonica. In chapter 2, read with me verses 6 and 7. Paul says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. That's all he said. About the problems, that's all he said. You received the word in much affliction. But he goes on to show the heart that they had when they received the word in their affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. Do you know what Paul just said about the church in Thessalonica? He just said, you produce fruit. You weren't scared of the people. You weren't scared of the consequences. You received the word in affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and you became examples to a whole wide-ranging area and group of people. That's just some of the fruit that God worked in their life because they simply believed God. So you see Paul's account uh, of what was going on in Thessalonica. You see Luke's account as he wrote uh, the book of Acts. Now, you're in 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 2 with me. Look at verses 13. Begin there. A life centered on the firm foundation of the gospel will weather the storms, and that's what they did. Look at verse 13 in chapter 2. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, he's thinking back. He's thinking back to that time that he came and he preached and he ministered and they trusted. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also affects effectively works in you who believe. What does the Word of God do in you? Everybody say works. What's the Word of God do in you? It works, my friend. It works to save you. It works to keep you safe. And it works to glorify you. It works to save you. It works to sanctify you. And it works to glorify you. My friends, the Word of God works. And by the way, when you let the Word of God work in you, God's the one that produces the fruit, the crop. You welcomed it as it is in the truth, verse 13, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which also suffered the same things. You're not in the boat alone. We speak of mission, and we give to mission. And many of you have at times gone on mission. But do we forget that there's churches all over the world that are facing a greater plight and struggle than we've ever, ever experienced? When it comes to missions, we're internationalists. We're worldwide focused 
when it comes to missions. But quite often when it comes to church, could it be said that we're actually isolationists? That what we're more concerned about than the fruit of Jesus Christ for the kingdom of God, what we're more concerned about is just simply us. I love the fact that Paul is building his brethren up here in Thessalonica. And he says, you brethren became imitators of the churches of God. You saw them. You understood their theology. You understood their doctrine. You understood their passion. You understood their provisions from God. And you decided that you were going to trust God in those same endeavors. And you became imitators of those churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things. They weren't scared by the suffering you suffered those same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You don't have to worry about what's going to come of it. God's going to have his day. And when God has his day and he has his say, his judgment is going to be just. But I want you to see the tone that Paul is writing with. He, he's not writing with an isolationist tone. He's not writing with an escapist tone. He's writing with a victorious tone. He said, you've been persecuted. Problems have come. Difficulties have happened. Hey, God's being glorified. And really, that's what it's all about. If your life is not about giving glory to God, then who's it about giving glory to? As long as the presence of Christ has been in the world <clears throat> through the church, then guess what? Satan wants to snuff it out. That's why he turned these men against Jason and Jason's house. Uh, that's why these difficulties were not only there in Thessalonica, but in Judea as well, because Satan hates what God is doing. But here's the truth. Those difficulties that Satan brings can both be internal and external internally compromise of the church with the world is one of the symptoms that Satan is trying to snuff it out. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 26, we find this verse. Another parable he put forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. What kind of seed did he sow? Anything wrong with the seed? No. He sowed good seed in his field. <clears throat> but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted, it produced a crop. And then the tares also. Do you understand that within the church, Satan wants to destroy it? If he wants to destroy Jesus, why do we think we would escape his destructive propensities? And he sows tares in the church. They look like the wheat. They grow with the wheat, but they're not the wheat. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Are there people that say, Lord, Lord, that come and sit every Sunday, and they claim to be a part of the bride of Christ, where in actuality they're still a tear? They're still a goat? They're still not his? And many of them are even fooled in that thinking that because they've been religious they deserve to go to heaven the symptoms of of compromise with the world here here's some symptoms of compromise with the world here here's one making decisions based on facts and not faith how many times have you heard in the debates over the past week i follow the science I follow the science. You you heard that? How many of you just quit watching the debates and could care less about anything about the debates right now? But that's been a talking point. I follow the science. You know what we call that? We call that humanism. It's humanism because we humans have come up with the science that have unearthed the discoveries that we have made when in fact many of those discoveries are not discoveries at all but rather just hypothetical thinking. Have you ever heard this? Eggs are bad for you. Who told you that? The scientists. Eggs are good for you. You ever heard that? Who told you that? The scientists. Eggs are bad for you. You ever heard that? Kind of goes back and forth, doesn't it? And I could follow a lot of different things that over the years have been good, have been bad, have been good, have been bad. The world's doing this, now the world's doing that. And yet, we're supposed to put trust in humans more than we are in the revealed word of God? I have a problem with that. And in the church, I have a problem when we say, you know what, we just want to make sure we're making our decisions based on the facts. It's as if God has a direction for us to go that doesn't square with the facts. We're going to say, God, that's okay. We got this. And you know what God will do? Have at it. You see, that is a symptom of humanism. That's a symptom of of allowing uh, internal Uh, interventions of Satan to distract the church from being what we're supposed to be, making decisions on facts and not faith. Am I saying you discount and discard all the facts? No, I'm not. But let me ask you this question. Is it a fact? I'll do my best Dwight impersonation. Fact. Food does not fall from heaven. But did it? fact a marching band cannot take down the walls of Jericho but did they fact water does not come from a rod just because you strike it with a rod but did it fact the more fish and loaves you give out the less you'll have But somehow, 
they multiply. We can square our economy up all we want and make decisions based upon what we think, what we figure, and what we know. And it may never square to the economy of God because His ways are not our ways. They're so different. Making decisions on fact and not faith is not God's way. He, he never said neglect all the facts, but neither did He say that that is the central foundation for your life. God is still in the miracle business. Here's another symptom. Challenging the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. In the church, this has happened. Challenging the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. I remember in some of my first classes, and I know we don't have time, but I'm taking just five more minutes. We learned about the JEDP theory. In other words, Moses couldn't have authored all those manuscripts of the Old Testament, so there's got to be different authors that contributed these parts and these parts and these parts, and therefore what they just said is the Bible's not actually what we take it to be. So how can I trust it? That was the higher critical thinking that began to come into play in the late 1800s and early 1900s and, and that began to be taught in our seminaries and schools and pastors that were uh, influenced by it went out and began teaching that in their pulpits where you can't really believe everything that's in the Bible because some is just simply allegorical that was thrown in there to make God seem bigger than he is how can you make God seem bigger than infinity if you even think about it for a second, you'll find that that's laughable. And there's no way that God did all those miracles. So what we're going to do is we're going to extrapolate all and, and take out all of those miracles that we find and get down to the very essence of what Scripture actually teaches. And you know what you find when you take all the miracles out of the Bible? A God that's really not capable of much. If he speaks and matter comes into existence, and that's not even the one that blows my mind, but then he breathes and life becomes a reality. How do you get life? Scientists still can't answer that. But there's an animation that God has given to objects called life. And only he could be the author of that. And if he can do that, there's not a miracle beyond his grasp. But Satan has caused the people of God to challenge the authority and sufficiency of Scripture through those kind of things, redaction theology and liberal theology. Intersectionality. I'm going to be speaking on this next week. I'm not going to spend much time here today, but you know what intersectionality is? It's the same thing repackaged and repurposed and represented to the church to say, you guys need to start seeing Scripture through this lens. 
That's what they did in the late 1800s and early 1900s when they said we've got to take the miracles out and see Scripture through this lens. Now they're saying you've got to see it through this cultural, humanistic lens. That's what intersectionality really is at its basis. And critical theory, critical race theory, it's the same thing. Let me be clear. There is only one race. And every kind of person, every shade of person at some time in the history of this world has been under the microscope of other humans where they've been oppressed to some degree. There's not been one shade of person that has always been the dominant within this world. And yet at the same time to postulate this is how you've got to see the world, is that not in and of itself oppressive? to the individuality of each person also? You have the liberty to see the world through the lens of Scripture or not. I will never oppress that or coerce that upon you. I'll teach it. I'll preach it. I'll search it out and find it and give it. But I'll never tell you If you don't see things my way, I'll unfriend you. I will tell you, if you don't see things God's way, you don't ever want him to unfriend you. Because if you don't see things God's way, there will be a payday someday. And we don't have the bank account to pay it. Jesus did. And he did pay it. Symptom, challenging the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. That's here now. That's nothing new. Another symptom, you'll like this one. Because these others were like, okay, that's out there. And that's out there. We're better than that. Another symptom of Satan trying to destroy the church. Christian complacency. But you don't understand. They drug us out of our house to the magistrates and and they beat us and and, and they scared the snot out of us and we really don't want to do this church thing anymore. That's not what they did in Thessalonica. You know what they did? They kept ministering. They became an example to all the churches around them because they just believed God was greater than any beating they could receive. And they just simply kept going and kept going and kept going. And when Paul writes the letter back to Thessalonica, he's writing a letter of victory not complacency because that's not what they were but yet complacency has gripped Christians to the degree that quite often we're just simply not living the will of God for our life and how in the world will we ever produce fruit when we're not giving God full control and sway of our days it ain't gonna happen my friends you cannot be complacent the works of the ministry is everyone's role evangelism discipleship outreach all of those are all of our roles it doesn't mean they're compartmentalized in some paradigm of programs it simply means when God calls you to go reach you go reach when God calls you to go teach you go teach 
When you sense the will of God to go and minister to this person, you go minister to that person. And when you are being sensitive to the Spirit of God to lead in your life, then He'll accomplish more through you personally than you'll ever see accomplished through a conglomeration of people trying to follow prescriptions. And when you see that, you realize you didn't produce that fruit. He did. And you're able to go turn around and say, God, I'm just a beggar showing other beggars where there's water. That's all I am. You don't get proud. High and mighty lifted up. If you've moved off the firm foundation of the gospel, you'll probably find these symptoms in your life. Because you're all of a sudden accomplishing these things, at least trying to, on your own. And when you've moved off the firm foundation of the gospel, if you say, wait, I'm still ministering to others and reaching out. I I, I still believe in the authority and sufficiency of the Scripture. Uh, I still make my decisions based upon faith, Pastor. I'm still all of that. Well, if you've not centered yourself on the gospel, you're susceptible to that attack. I'm saying, people, get back. Get back to the Word. Get back to saying, great is God, and everything around me is going to be turned to chaos one day anyway, and I'm going to focus my time and my attention on the truth of God's Word because the greatest destruction to the church and the greatest destruction to the believer does not come from the outside, but from the inside. And that's why scripture over and over says to you, believer, guard your heart. And that's where we're going to go next Sunday. Because the hard work that God has for you is actually a heart work. And if it's not a heart work, it's not his work. And if it is a heart work and it's his work, By that nature, he produces fruit. Let's pray. Father, we see the fact that all growth is your growth. That nothing happens for the kingdom of God. That God, you have not superintended it, directed it, and completed it. And therefore, God, we we don't want to get ahead of you. And we don't want to walk around you. We want to be right in the center of the will that you have for each one of us individually. And and when we're walking individually in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ, letting that gospel permeate us and direct us, and God, when we come together corporately, we'll be headed in the same direction together as well. And, And when internal assaults come from Satan to try to put enemies behind the line to try to distract us and dissuade us through scientific pseudo-scientific and pseudo-spiritual disciplines then God we'll be keen to say stop that and, and get out of here Satan because greater is God than you we'll be aware and God complacency will not even be named amongst the ones that are following close after you 
for God, they'll be walking in the will and the way that you have for them. Not being moved off the foundation. And so, Father, I, I just pray for us. I just pray we keep the main thing the main thing. And that as we walk with you, we look for what you are desiring to do. And I pray this today in this time of invitation, by the name of Jesus, amen. Pastor Jeff.